This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Niti Nadaraja, the Head of Legal at Philip Morris. Niti has followed a unique path through the industry. She started out her career in Australia, but spent a number of her early years in London before returning to Australia and diving into in-house roles. Today, you'll hear about Nitty's perspective on the importance of authentic leadership. Nitty will also share some of the challenges that she's faced with pregnancy loss, fertility issues and stillbirth, and we'll explore the benefits of having an open dialogue in the workplace. Okay, let's dive in. So, Nitty, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me, May. It's lovely to be here. I thought we could get started with just getting to know you a bit better. So you started your career in Melbourne, but you spent a lot of time in London. What was that experience like? It was really interesting experience, actually. I'd spent three years here and decided that I needed to do something a little bit different. And it wasn't just about where I was working. It was about living in Australia as well. I wanted to move, do something different. So I decided to go to London and joined Alan and Overy over there. It actually surprised me how different law firm life was in London versus in Melbourne. The work was a lot more dynamic because you were often dealing with things that crossed over many jurisdictions. So it was quite interesting and exciting from that perspective. People were different culturally. The environment just wasn't the same. I think in Australia, I find people are generally pretty down to earth. In London, it was, it did have a little bit more of that sort of stiff upper lip feel to it. People didn't necessarily tell you what they thought to your face. So that was definitely a challenge to get used to. But on the whole, I loved my experience in London. I was there when the GFC hit, which I think will always be an experience I remember. It was not the most pleasant of experiences at all times, but it definitely gave me a lot of resilience because you witnessed so many people around me losing their jobs or struggling with what was going on, but also making massive pivots in their life and starting to do something incredibly different after having had this happen to them. So, yeah, so London was an interesting experience. It was a fantastic experience. And I did meet my husband over there too. So, you know, something good did come of it. Well, it sounds like it was a very enriching experience. And as you say, topped off on meeting your husband. Exactly. (laughs) Why did you decide to come back to Australia? So I had always wanted to come back to Australia. When I went to London, I had thought that I would only be there for a couple of years. I had actually, I was born over in the UK my parents left when I was quite little and one of the reasons they left was they did feel a little bit of racism over there and they didn't as a result ever feel really comfortable and at home and so they moved to Australia to give us a better life and it was something that was quite evident to me when I was over there. I just preferred the lifestyle back in Australia 
as well as the weather. The weather was a problem after a few years. So I had said all along I would move home, and then I met my husband, who was English. So we had quite a serious chat about where things were going and the fact that I wanted to move back home. So the fact that I was there for five years was only really because of him and wanting to give him that time in London before we moved home. And lucky for us, you convinced him to move back to Australia with you by the sounds of it. Obviously, you started in private practice, so you've had experience in that area. What drew you to an in-house role? Oh, so many things. I was a transactional lawyer in private practice. So I did predominantly equity capital markets towards the end of my time in private practice, but also a little bit of M&A. And one of the things that I used to love about deals was particularly the equity capital markets deals was that you would really get to know a company because you were writing a prospectus on them, for example. So you'd have to dig deep into what this company was about, what their strategies were, who were the people, et cetera, et cetera. But then when the deal was over, then you moved on to the next company. And it actually was something that really jarred with me. Like I loved getting to know the organization and I felt like I couldn't really do that to the same degree in private practice. So that was one reason. The second reason was lifestyle. And this is not just about working long hours because you do work long hours in-house as well. Things can get very busy. So there's definitely that similarity. But I think the thing that I found really frustrating in private practice was the peaks and the troughs. So especially as a transactional lawyer, you could be really busy day in, day out, working from nine through to 11 o'clock at night for weeks and then when it ended you'd have this period of lull where nothing was happening and I actually found that period quite difficult to manage because you kind of felt like you should be doing something but you weren't and so you couldn't even relax during that time like it's counterintuitive but it just didn't work for me and so The thing I had enjoyed about being on secondments in-house previously was that my days were always busy, that there wasn't a moment during the day where I had time to wonder what should I do next. There was always something to do. But at the end of the day, your day finished and you were able to enjoy your life to do the other things that you like to do, you know, spend time with family, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that was a big thing in moving in-house was this being busy throughout the day, but being able to put things aside at the end of the day as well and being able to enjoy some of that family time. As someone who was looking to have a family in the near future, It was a really important thing for me that I'd be able to have that balance and be able to enjoy time with my family once I did have one. I think that you really hit the nail on the head there, Nishi. I mean, I many moons ago used to be in private practice and similarly in the corporate transactions area, and you're so true, those so right, those peaks and troughs can be a bit of a roller coaster ride. Now I know that in the past you've written about authentic leadership and I want to explore this subject with you a bit. So maybe to start out, could you explain to our listeners what does authentic leadership mean? Yeah, so a few things for me. I think firstly, if you look at authenticity by itself, I think particularly for lawyers, we are a certain type of person. 
we're typically type A personalities. We grow up with this real sense of needing to achieve and often accompanying that is a fear of failing and perfectionism. And I think when we enter the workforce, you almost put on this persona because you feel you have to present in a certain way. You know, you you compartmentalise your professional life and your personal life. And so often I think where we can end up in at least the early part of our careers as lawyers is in a space that can feel quite inauthentic and quite fake in some respects. And the thing that is important is that as I've grown into my career, I've realised that actually the more of you you can bring to your workplace, the further you will go. And so I, quite a few years back, started really exploring things like flexibility in the workplace. After having had some not-so-great experiences after coming back after my first child, it was a topic that I became really passionate about doing something about in the workplace, really changing perceptions around flexibility, ensuring as well that it wasn't just seen as something that was about women, particularly women who'd had children, but was viewed more broadly than that. So for me, it was bringing these issues that I actually had a real passion about, likewise mental health, to work and doing something in those spaces. So really starting to bring myself to my workplace. That was for me the piece about authenticity. And then I think in terms of leadership, I think it's that plus there's an element of transparency and vulnerability that needs to attach to the way you manage people or that you lead an organization because especially in-house you may get to a point in your career where you're sitting on management teams or executive teams and so it's not just about managing your team but it's about leading an organization and being seen as someone who people can approach and they can talk to whatever level of the organization they're at And so for me, the biggest thing I think there is that transparency piece. And I think often people can go wrong in this space. Like I've seen it said before, you know, some people have the view that, you know, you don't tell people too much because it's not good for them to tell them too much. I completely disagree. Like the more you hide from people, the more they're going to start making up their own stories. And then once they make up their own stories, that's when you end up in a place of disengagement and your culture just crashes with that. So I think transparency and the vulnerability to admit when you've made mistakes or you haven't done something perfectly is really important. So for me, this is all this piece around authentic leadership that I'm very passionate about. I can definitely hear the passion and you've even touched on a few fantastic tips, but I'd like to explore some examples that you can give us around the time you've demonstrated this and what actually happened when you were your true authentic self. The biggest example for me would be just what's happened in the last year and a half or two years almost now. Transparency has been so important during this time because None of us have been okay. Everyone has been struggling. Whatever your personal struggle is, and I said this the other day to someone, parents have been struggling on the one hand, but equally people who are living by themselves have been struggling with solitude and loneliness on the other hand. So 
everyone has had their struggle through this period and I think it has been really critical to be able to stand up and say, I am not okay and that's fine. This is where we are at the moment. I'm not okay. I'm going to share that with you and I'm going to let you know that it's okay to tell me that you're also not okay. So for me, that's probably been the biggest example. And I think it has been incredibly invaluable to be able to do that because I have in return had a lot of transparency from people within my organisation as well. I agree with you totally, Nitty. And I think, as you say, the last two years, particularly for those in Melbourne, have been incredibly tough. If anyone hasn't felt the impacts of it or admitted to it, then they're probably in the minority, I'd say, in the very small minority. Why do you think it's important for in-house lawyers to lead from this place of authenticity? The issue sometimes with the legal function in corporations is that we are viewed as this little specialised area. And so I think it's very easy for lawyers to sit in that area and just focus on the law. And you end up having this a little bit of a conflict here, right? Because on the one hand, the business says to you, no, no, we need you to be more than a lawyer. We need you to give us strategic advice and be a business partner. And then on the other hand, you might have others in the business who say, no, no, just give me the legal answer, right? But I think as you go through your career, there comes a point where you are sitting in management teams or executive teams, and you are having discussions about things that go far beyond your legal experience. So there might be people issues that you're dealing with, There might be just supply chain issues or whatever, depending on the type of business you're in. And so you need to have that ability to step up and step outside of your role and really bring your viewpoints to work. So particularly, I think, in this space around people and culture and engagement, which often issues that are very topical for corporations and particularly through times like the ones we're living through right now, it's very important that with people's mental health being so low that organisations are focusing on culture and what they can do in that space. With that, I think if you can as a lawyer stand up and say, yes, this is what I do but this is who I am and I can bring this whole person to work and present those views within these management team discussions, I think you're seen differently. You're seen not just as a lawyer. And for me, it was really evident in the time leading up to my promotion to my role that I'm in now, that it was the work that I was doing outside of my job. It was the mental health space. It was the flexibility. It was all of those things that were starting to get me recognised for being someone that could lead. You've mentioned the work that you've been doing around flexibility and mental health. Could you maybe just give us a little bit more detail on that? Because I'm very interested to hear, you know, what did you do? And I think it would really help our listeners to understand, as you say, that being more than a lawyer and the contribution you can make. Absolutely. So with the flexibility piece, The first thing that we started off doing, I was working with a group of people initially and then it sort of became my baby as things went on. But initially we did a survey of the organisation. So we crafted this survey using a lot of different source material to try and understand the different types of things that might be an issue for people 
So it was looking at how flexibility was viewed differently by different genders, for example, or amongst different age groups or different senioritys across the organisation, whether people felt that they were able to work flexibly and equally, what were managers' views on flexibility? So did they trust people to get things done if they were working, for example, remotely? And this is obviously all before the pandemic hit, so very different world in terms of the attitudes and perceptions around remote work. So we did a survey first and then we did a deep dive into the results of that survey to understand, look, where potentially are the issues? And from there, we took that survey and we said, okay, here are five or six things that we really need to start focusing on. And so one of the big ones was around people being afraid to ask for flexibility and this whole idea that I'm a man and therefore I'm not going to get flexibility or I'm going to be perceived negatively if I ask for it or I have to have a really good reason to ask for flexibility and typically that is to do with having kids essentially and if I don't have kids then how can I get flexibility and how can I legitimately ask for it so we really changed the way we looked at flexibility and turned it on its head to say your answer as a manager needs to be a default of yes and if you want to say no then you need to jump through more hoops which include you know having discussions with people in culture team for example so it's really looking at it very differently and trying to understand where are the issues that are arising for people. And then we've created a video to basically demonstrate what we've done in this space and how things were changing and where we wanted the attitudes to move towards. And in doing that, I also shared my own personal story of the perceptions I'd faced with flexibility and some of the issues that personally for me had arisen. That was my first real foray into being really vulnerable in an open space, right? Like not just with one or two people, but with a wider group of people. And it was incredibly frightening to do it and worried a lot about sharing my own personal story because it was a story that related to my time at my organisation as well. But it was so rewarding to share it and people came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, thank you for being so brave in sharing that. And I think this is where the power of vulnerability can really shine through. It's something many of us, most of us, I think, struggle with. But when you can start doing it and when you continue to do it, it becomes easier and easier and easier. And now I talk about things openly with people that four years ago I never would have spoken about. So that for me is the flexibility space. And then Mental health was a little bit different. It started off in a very legal space. We were actually looking at it from the perspective of claims that employees were bringing and mental health was continually coming up as something that employees were claiming that they were suffering from. And so we wanted to look at that space a little bit more carefully because it is quite fraught from a legal perspective. And just to understand what that looked like and what we could do and provide some more guidance to our managers as to what they should do in this space. But whilst we were looking at it from a legal perspective, we quickly realised that actually there's a bigger piece here and the bigger piece is awareness around mental health and managers understanding what they can and can't and should and shouldn't do in these circumstances when someone is telling them that they're not doing Great. So we started looking into that area and we got a consultant in 
to help us try and build a program of trying to increase awareness and education around mental health. What are two fantastic examples and how prescient of you, given, as you say, since the start of pandemic, really, they're the two big issues, this working remotely and then the impacts on everyone's mental health. So I expect your organisation was very well prepared given all of that work effort and also sharing by the sounds of it of your personal story, the positive impact that made. You actually touched on vulnerability in sharing your story. I did want to ask when you do open up like that, do you find a strength in that? Because as you say, probably for particularly for lawyers, we're trained to put the walls up and to provide confidence to our clients, whether they're in-house or if you're in, even in private practice as well. So vulnerability doesn't naturally go with that persona. You're right. And it was very challenging initially. I mean, I had very much grown up in a household as well where you weren't really vulnerable about your mental health, like a very loving household, but not one where you spoke openly about these things. So for me, it was definitely very challenging when I first stepped up and said to myself, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about my own personal story. And when I started off, I started off in a space that felt a little bit more comfortable. I only gave as much as I was comfortable sharing. There is more that I could have shared, but I didn't. And so it was scary initially, but I did over time as I shared more and more. And it's actually something that I've developed even further through being quite active on LinkedIn in particular, where I do quite often share personal stories, is the more I share of myself, the more I heal those wounds. So the issues that, for example, I had with flexibility or that I've had in the past with mental health, as I talk about them more and share them with other people and share those experiences with other people, I actually heal as well through that journey. And then in addition to that, I think you allow other people that space to share their own stories. And I do this quite regularly in the space of uh, pregnancy loss, which is something that I'm quite passionate about as well as a topic, because I did have a couple of pregnancy losses myself. And it is so rewarding when you can share your own story and then have other people say, I feel seen, I feel heard. Thank you so much for talking about this. I haven't been able to talk about this, but I feel I can now share my story. And that has happened a number of times over the last few years. And that for me is where the strength comes in because each one of those people that tells me something like that it makes the fact that I'm being vulnerable so much more powerful. So you've very, very generously shared some of your experience about pregnancy loss and not only just with us now, but obviously with more broadly in your organisation. And it's obviously an issue that many women feel they need to stay silent about that. Why do you think it's important to talk openly about these issues? Pregnancy loss, I think, is cloaked in a cone of silence. And the reason it is, is because we are told or taught, I guess, when we are pregnant that we really don't want to be sharing that in the first trimester because of the chances of facing a pregnancy loss. 
As a result, we don't tell anyone. We keep the news to ourselves within our nuclear family. Perhaps even if we have kids, we don't even tell the kids. And then when pregnancy loss then happens, no one knows. So it is cloaked in silence and you suffer in silence as a result. And I think as a result of this silence, society generally seems to have this view that you just get over pregnancy loss because it is common. It's something that so many people face. And so for me, it has become something that has become incredibly important to talk about because when I had my own losses, I felt very alone in that grief and depression that I was facing at the time. And it slowly dawned on me just how many people I knew had faced similar losses, but none of them had ever talked to me about their losses prior to that time. As I became more comfortable talking about my losses, it was something I wanted to do more and more and more, just so that we basically built an environment where it was okay for people to talk about their pregnancy losses and so that people had an awareness of the impact of these losses on women and not just women but also men in their life because if there is a man involved because it does impact both people and often we go to work and we don't share these experiences with other people so people think we're okay you know nothing's happened And I think it's important that people know that actually, no, these are pretty traumatic experiences, experiences that can result in all sorts of mental health issues. And so for me, that's why it's important to normalise that conversation. And I thank you for it, because even just sharing this today, I think is adding to that normalising the conversation. Do you think women in demanding careers such as law feel a particular pressure to stay silent about these topics such as pregnancy loss, infertility and stillbirth? I think so. I mean, I think there's a pressure to keep these things to oneself in most professions, most industries. But I think in a profession that is still so heavily male-dominated, particularly in the most senior ranks of organisations, I think there often can be a desire to keep these things a little bit to oneself because you're not sure how people will react and they're not things that people talk about openly You know, grief is something that I think so many people find hard to deal with. People don't know what to say. They question what is the right thing to say, whereas quite often the best thing one can do is just sit there in silence, in compassionate silence, and hold space for that other person to share what they want to share. But because these are not environments that are typically built with that sort of environment in mind, it can be very challenging for women in the legal profession to share these stories and experiences. Given that, as you say, it can be very challenging for women, and I expect men as well, to share these stories, what do you think needs to change in our society and specifically in the legal industry to make it easier for women and their partners to feel supported? Quite a few things. So I think firstly, there needs to be more conversation about these issues, about what it means to have a pregnancy loss, to have a stillbirth, to be going through a fertility or infertility journey, including IVF, which, you know, 
not that I've been through IVF, but I know people who have, and it's quite traumatic as well. You know, I think there needs to be firstly more conversation. And I think in the legal profession, whether it's law firms, whether it's in-house, whatever sort of organisation you work in, I think that conversation needs to be encouraged and it needs to be facilitated. So that's number one. I think secondly, organisations need to start investing in understanding what the impact of these types of experiences is on the people that are going through them. So particularly, I think, you know, now that we do have special leave that has been legislated into the Fair Work Act in relation to pregnancy losses, early pregnancy losses, I think it's important that organisations equip their managers to be able to deal with the conversations that will arise because having leave now means that if nothing else, hopefully more people will start sharing the fact that they are going through these experiences. And as that happens, managers need to know or need to understand how they can have those conversations with their people. That's the second thing I think we need to look at. And then thirdly, it's really evaluating the policies and leave that we have within organisations to see whether it is adequate it is meeting the needs of people as and where they're at. And, you know, this goes even beyond things like pregnancy losses to even things such as menopause, right? If you've got more senior women in organisations, how do we deal with issues like that? How do we ensure that people that are going through these experiences don't just have to soldier on, that there is a way for them to make it known what they're going through, not just women, men as well, in the space of pregnancy losses, for example, and that they are supported in doing exactly that. Thank you for sharing all of those wonderful ideas, Nitty. And hopefully the last couple of years, if nothing else, has taught all of us a bit more compassion and empathy. And as you say, everyone goes through different experiences and different challenging times and how we can support each other. I thought we might just change pace here a bit and move on to what we're calling the quick fire round questions. So I have a couple of questions here and the idea is that I will ask you those questions. Just tell me the first thing that comes into your mind and we will whip through these. So if you're ready, first question is, if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? That life is not a linear journey and that you'll face challenges along the way and that each of these challenges, whilst horrible at the time, will help you grow into a far better person years from now. Very sage advice. I've got a 19-year-old, so I'm collecting all these answers ready for her 21st. (laughs) (laughs) What is one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role? Ooh. Good question. One of the biggest skills I've learned, and it's something most lawyers moving from private practice to in-house need to learn to develop, is the ability to adapt one's communication according to one's audience. So we're used to in private practice writing these very long, very legal memos and also not taking often not arriving, I guess, at a clear recommendation. Sometimes we sit on the fence because of liability issues and all the rest of it. But I think in in in-house, you need to be able to, one, synthesise 
your advice into something that makes sense for the business and gives them what they need so you're not hiding behind a whole lot of legalese. And secondly, you need to be able to make a decision and give them a clear recommendation as to what you would do if you were making the decision. Great advice, particularly for those who are new to in-house. So where do you go to upskill? All sorts of places. Firstly, I think there's a lot of upskilling that you do on the job. I think by observing the people that you're working with, if you have that luxury, like some people are sole practitioners in-house, but I think if you do have a team of people, if you have a manager that you can observe, that is one of the best ways to upskill. Secondly, training in the external environment is still so relevant and so important. And I, in the last few years, have started expanding my horizons about what I do in the training space. So from taking courses about well-being to, at the moment, I'm looking at courses in neuroscience because I'm just fascinated by the area. And I think all of this actually helps you become a better leader as well, because leading is about human psychology. So when you're thinking about how do you upskill, upskilling doesn't necessarily just need to be about legal skills. It can be about interpersonal skills. It can be about leadership skills. It can be about communication. It can be about presentation. There are so many different things you can do. And I think expanding your horizons to beyond just what the legal industry is providing is quite important as well. Tell me who's someone you really admire. So I actually really admire my dad. Growing up, he really taught us to be open-minded and to respect other people, to respect other cultures and I think for me, it's a large part of who I am and the beliefs and the values that I hold dear today. And for that reason, I think my dad is someone that's really molded the person that I am today and he's someone that I admire greatly. What fantastic feedback for your dad. I'm sure you've shared it with him, but I've heard quite a number of people similarly said that their parents have been people they'd admire, which is wonderful. What's one item on your bucket list? Oh, I don't know. I don't really have a bucket list. But if I was to think right now about what I want to do in the coming years, one of the things I definitely want to do is travel again. I love to travel. And the last few years, and I say few years because I was on maternity leave as well before COVID hit. So I haven't really traveled anywhere for at least, I'd say, two and a half years, if not longer. So one of the things I really want to do is is start traveling again. And one of the places I'm hoping to go to in the near future is Japan because it just fascinates me and I love learning about different places and different people and perhaps not a bucket list item, but definitely something that I'm looking forward to doing in the next few years. Sounds fantastic. And I think you'll probably be beating off other people for those seats on the airplanes, at least in the near future. Yep. (laughs) What's your favorite hobby? I love to dance. I used to dance a lot as a child. And so for me, dancing is my go-to when I'm feeling a little bit down. So I actually, through COVID, especially with two kids at home, and my oldest is seven now, would often just put on the music if we were having an off day and just dance around the living room. So I think for me, dancing is a big thing. The other thing I've actually found that I really enjoy doing, because it does, I guess, make me go into this sort of meditative trance almost is drawing and painting 
and it's just really simple things. Like I just get those paint by number kits and just literally sit there and paint. And it's such a nice way to spend a day or spend an evening and not resort to the TV being on, but instead do something that, yeah, is a little bit more creative, I guess. I agree totally. And I think also if you are in a job where you're doing lots of reading and writing, being able to do something completely different, use a different part of your brain and your body is fantastic. Talking about reading though, what are you reading at the moment? I am reading nothing at the moment and I'm hoping my son's two at the moment and he doesn't sleep through the night still. He was at one point, but he's gone back to not sleeping through the night. So for me, it's become a little bit challenging to find time to read books. I read a lot of people write on LinkedIn, for example, and articles that they share, but reading books I haven't done for quite some time. So I'm hoping maybe in the coming year, Maybe things settle down and I can go back to reading because I do love reading. But I often read fiction, actually. For me, reading has often been about escapism and exactly what you said before around types of jobs that we're in and sometimes it's nice to do something different. When I read, I actually prefer not to read nonfiction. I prefer to read fiction because it just helps me to enter a world that's different from the one I'm living in. I totally relate, Nitty. I'm exactly the same. And, you know, people always ask me at work, what do I read? Thinking I'll come out with some long list of incredible classics. And I say light crime fiction, very specific genre. (laughs) Can't be too heavy, but it's got to be, as you say, escapist. Yeah. And yes, I feel your pain on not sleeping through. My son similarly didn't sleep through for a long time, but it will happen. He will start sleeping Mm. and you will get some of your life back. So... As you said to your early 21-year-old self, you will get through. Now, to just finish up, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? I think this has changed over the years, but because I do have a toddler at the moment, my first thing in the morning is often dictated by him. So generally, it's he's screaming and I run in and I pick him up and give him a big hug, which actually is a very nice way to start the morning. So that tends to be my go-to at the moment. As and when I have a little bit more time, I'd love to start the day with a little bit of meditation or something, but for now it's just not something that's practically possible. And as you say, starting the day with a hug from your toddler is a pretty special way to start the day. So thank you, Nitty, for joining us on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you also for being so generous and open with some of your very tough experiences. I think those that do listen to this interview will be really inspired by what you've shared, not only your personal experience, but some really good examples of how we can become more authentic leaders and find strength through vulnerability. So thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learned by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. 
If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time. Thank you.